Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we continue our in-depth conversation about race and racism. We're talking with two parents of black children. Isaiah Simmons is the parent of a boy and a girl and the mentor to a nephew and a niece. Judge Gail Williams Byers is the judge of the South Euclid Municipal Court, and she's the mother of a mixed race son. We discuss what it's like to be a parent of black children today and the dangers they face. They also tell us about the talk that almost every black parent gives their children. Judge Gail, uh, Isaiah, thank you for talking with us. Um, how different do you perceive it to be of raising black children in our society today in 2020 as it is to raise white children in our society in 2020? Okay. Well, I would start that conversation. Uh, the difference with raising which was uh, in 2020 is that I believe that we have to caution our children more so than uh, our Caucasian counterparts would have to caution their children. We have to teach our children that, especially for a black young man, that society, unfortunately, we have to deal with racism. And we have to deal with racism in our professional world. And we have to deal with racism when dealing with our law enforcement agencies as well. And so you, we have to be extra careful as black young men and women in society dealing with what we uh, witnessed on TV a few weeks ago with George Floyd, uh, also with Ahmaud Avery and and a lot of other situations that have transpired throughout the years. It is a huge difference from when I was raised. We didn't have to deal with that as much, but I, I try my best to tell my nephew Jalen and I try my best to tell my son, my daughter Gwendolyn, and I, and I would say my niece Jordan, that we have to walk a, a fine line. And, and if they are approached by police, I try to tell them that, that there is a certain way you have to act. There are things that you have to do. We have to teach them how to uh, say certain things. Uh, 
when they speak to police officers. And so it, it, today is just a total difference from, like I said, from our Caucasian counterparts. I don't believe that they have to have this talk with their children as we have to talk to professionally. We have to tell our children, you know, education is the key. And because it is a difference in the workforce as well with our children. I mean, it, it, I look here, we live here in South Euclid, and I look at our fire department, whereas uh, I have to tell my, my, especially my nephew, Jalen, he's going to college in a, in a few months or so that, you know, you have to do things different. Here, here in South Euclid, we only have one black fireman. And I just think that that is ludicrous to me. So we have to do things. I have to have these conversations with them to tell them that they have to be exceptional in order to make it in this society. And you know what, Isaiah, I absolutely agree. Um, As the mother of a young black male who's 20, going on 21, you think, you know, gosh, I should be done with the talk, right? We shouldn't even have to do that. And I compare his coming of age to my coming of age and your coming of age and how our parents had a talk with us that's even different from the one that we have had with our children. When I think about how my parents prepared me for adulthood vis-a-vis interactions with the world, including law enforcement. Um, It was even different than how it is that I've had to prepare my son for his interactions. For example, yes, my mom and dad absolutely made sure they, they drilled into me and my siblings, be courteous, be respectful, make eye contact. Eye contact is you know, directly connected with trustworthiness. Nobody wants to deal with someone who isn't trustworthy. Uh, always use ma'am and sir. That's respectful. Um, and I would remember, you know, my parents would be complimented that, you know, your children are so respectful. And they're so courteous. I, in, in retrospect, I don't know that I ever heard my white counterparts being called courteous or respectful, nor do I think their parents ever cared that they were called courteous or respectful. That wasn't necessarily a badge of honor that I think their parents sought to earn. But for parents like mine, you know, they, you know, I think felt some level of pride when white America would respond to them and you know, say, hey, your kids are courteous and respectful as if they had done a good job earning, you know, some level of of respect from white America that they they weren't, you know, sending into the world, you know, these, you know, wild children that had no sense of civility, but they had done a good thing by, you know, producing these civilized young people who would be productive potentially. Um, and so that was something good. And But I don't necessarily recall my mom and dad, which by the way, was also unique because growing up in a two-parent home also was unique. 
for me because I had lots of friends who did it. Notwithstanding, I still know that my parents were, you know, very careful. And it was always sort of marked by those, and you might have had it too, those sort of coming of age markers when you got your license, when you started going to parties or co-ed parties, when you you know, started doing extracurricular activities that sort of left you at school when school was over or sports or whatever. Anything that sort of left you outside of your parents' immediate care control is when they started having more and more discussions with you about, hey, this is how you need to handle yourself or this is what you need to do when we're not around because they were always concerned about what these interactions with other folks might look like because it's not uncommon in black communities that we're raised by villages and villages can include, you know, the neighbor, the church member, the aunt or the uncle, and everybody's got eyes on you. But more than anything, everybody's always concerned about, Hey, what are the outsiders going to do to you? Which could yes, often include police or other people, usually, you know, folks that don't look like us. But moving out of that sphere into being a parent of a young black male, that whole dynamic has changed. And so growing up, if I and mind you, you know, you were from East Side Cleveland. I'm from East Cleveland, one of the poorest, poorest communities in all of Northeast Ohio. So it wasn't uncommon to see folks stop by police growing up, no problem. But as I've gotten older, I see, you know, as my kid has started driving and everything else, when I tell you that whole dynamic has turned on a dime. And now, you know, my heart skips a beat when I see kids my son's age just getting stopped for a basic, what seems like a basic traffic violation. Why? Because I'll look and I'll see what looks like Half of a dog on police force at a single traffic stop for one black or brown driver. And often I, I'm scratching my head because I'm wondering, my gosh, does it take all of that? And I rarely ever see two, three, four cruisers when the driver is white and I'm not suggesting backup isn't necessary for some of these traffic stops, but I just, just the frequency of seeing it and almost the innate knowing that that's what's going to happen. And then I think, gosh, is that what my kid endures when, and I know my, my kid's been driving since he's 17. He's now 20. And I know he's gotten like, you know, two or three tickets. The fear that you must experience if you've gotten a speeding ticket and now you've got a fleet of police cruisers for a speeding ticket. And now, again, so the talk that I've had to have with him that I know my parents didn't necessarily have to have with me. And the one that I think you probably had to have with your son and your nephew, especially because they're males, that your dad probably didn't have to have to that extent with you, although you can cut me off and tell me because your dad probably had to have a similar kind of conversation with you because I think some of it is gender driven. I think that what society has created is this fear of black men, even more so than black women, 
because it's something about the black male that has been just created to be so ominous that it is like almost paralyzing white America such that, oh my gosh, you know, that, that California road through the stop sign means we got to put all hands on deck. We've got to stop this threat. And that to me is, that's what's fearful as a mother is you having had to have that conversation because remember I was a prosecutor. So I sat next to some of the best in law enforcement that this county has to offer. But I also know that not everybody has that puts on that uniform has the best intentions. And so the conversation that I've had with my son has been painful because I know that the talk is necessary. And I've had to drill it from the time that I thought he could understand. And I know that this kid was scratching his head early on. Like, why is she telling me? That, you know, every other white kid can be told, hey, the police are your friend. Or when you're when mommy's not around, I want you to go and find a police officer and they're going to help you and they're going to get you to safety and they're going to make sure that you're okay." And instead, my mom is telling me, don't you dare. Or when you see them, you better be careful. Watch what you say. And you better make sure you are cooperating and no swift moves. And above all, make sure you get home. Yes. Isaiah, let me uh, jump in here. Uh, what are the elements? What do you say in, as you and, and the judge have referred to it as the talk? What, what is the talk? I know what it's intended to do. It's intended to protect but what do you say in the talk? Well, I, I say in the talk uh, to my son, to my daughter, I, I could bring up an incident because I brought this up uh, to my nephew. I, I look, this is the talk. The talk is looking back five years ago in South Carolina with a young man named Dylan Roof who walked inside of a church and I believe he killed I believe seven or eight individuals or prisoners of that church. And the talk is this. I said, look, Alex, look, Jalen, look, Jordan, look, Gwendolyn. Did you notice how they arrested that young man? This man used a weapon, a gun, as a matter of fact, to eliminate eight individuals, I believe. But yet, the police force or the police department or the sheriff's department, when they went to go arrest this individual, they had no weapon drawn, no anything. In fact, they called out to him like, come on, Dylan. Come on, Dylan. Let's let's just go. And if that was a black young man, I would probably say just uh, a, about a week or two ago, there was another video that surfaced about a black young man 
who they were stopping just for, I believe it was, it might have been his taillight was out. However, the black man pulled into his driveway. He was standing outside the car with his hands in his air, hands in the air, which is common practice, I believe, amongst black folks now. And the officers of this, well, I, I, let me go back. This gentleman had no gun, no knife, no taser, no anything in his hand. He had his hands in the air. The police officers in which arrived on the scene, all of them got out the car, guns pointed at the guy. He said, I don't have a weapon, hands in the air. His grandmother, who is, I believe she was 92 years old, came out of the house to say, please don't kill my grandson. Please don't kill my grandson. Went to the individual knocked this 92-year-old grandmother down just to arrest this guy who was now at the time down on the ground, hands spread it, legs spread it out. He is clearly no threat. So the talk is, why did they have to do this to this black young man? Because I believe it's like what the judge said, there is a fear amongst black young men that we are hyper that we blow up that you know we cause trouble and that is untrue so this is the talk that i have and so i would say that for me as a mother the talk is identified as a candid discussion with my son and also the young men in my life that I've adopted as sons, nephews, nieces, goddaughters, and the like, my village. And it is a discussion that tells them specific instructions on how to engage with certain power structures in white America, beginning with white police officers, quite frankly. But it doesn't end there because what I also know is that beyond the police, there are other avenues of society that they're going to engage with that could invite the police into their life. That if they are not careful, it could also cause them other issues or problems. For example, not only do I have to have a talk with my son about, hey, what do you do? When you encounter the police, well, here's what happens. Here's what you should do at a traffic stop. Well, here's what you, you should do if you encounter the police walking down the street or in some other instance. And there are very specific responses that we talk about. And I'll be honest, chief among them, chief among them, before I talk about, hey, put your hands out the window or be courteous or be kind, I will be very blunt. My very, my golden rule for my child, my golden rule for my child is you must live to tell the story, period. Everything else is secondary. I don't care what happens. I don't care what is going on. 
I don't care what is said to you. I don't care what transpires. I cannot talk to a headstone. So I need you to make it home alive. That's how that talk begins. But then I'm also no fool. I understand that there is privilege in white America that my son does not have. And so he's no doubt going to be a consumer. He's no doubt going to just one day, you know, be a visitor someplace. So I've got to prepare him for certain encounters. How do you navigate life as a consumer without just being accused, falsely accused because you live under the cloud of just certain preconceived notions? And so how do you navigate life in just a store? Well, there are some basic things that this talk includes. Hey, when you walk in a store, take your hood off. If you got on a hoodie, take your hood off. Why? Because as a, as a black male, listen, more likely than not, you're going to be the first one followed around the store. Like it or not, the assumption is that you are up to no good. You're probably prepared to steal something, even if you're not. The assumption is that you look the part. So if you, even if it's raining outside, the first thing you do, take your hood off. Don't touch nothing. You are not prepared to buy. Don't touch nothing. And if you purchase something, get a receipt. Mm -hmm. And these are just basic things that I know white kids don't ever have to have this discussion with their parents. Why? Because if they make a mistake, if they happen to put that item in their bag and walked out and just didn't happen to pay, oh, they get the benefit of the doubt. My child will automatically be assumed or presumed to be a born thief for which he deserves to be punished most harshly. And so whether he is mistaken or not isn't even the point. I got to prepare him because out the gate, he's already presumed to already be destined to have a life of criminality. He's supposed to have spent some part of his life behind bars. It's a rite of passage for him to have spent some part of his life incarcerated. And my job as a parent in this talk is to guard against that because that does not have to be his reality. Well, you have to forgive me, Tom. I'm sorry. It just brought me to tears just thinking about it's it's just it's just fine, Isaiah. I I thought we lost to the connection, no, so no. so please just just go ahead and 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 let let me ask a specific question, and then you guys can can give me more information. When do you start to have the talk? What what I'm hearing. The two of you say is obviously when you get to teenage years and and where the child is mobile and out of the uh, uh, eyesight of the parent uh, or the guardian, uh, certainly you have to have that talk. But it sounds like this talk starts earlier with a black child. Uh, it, 
Am I correct in that or not? Uh, I would probably say that I'm, uh, as a preacher, we use the age of accountability. And we determine that to be between the ages of of understanding. But be, between it could be six to eight years old. And, and yes, it does have to happen early for our children may so than our ca- Caucasian counterparts because they have to understand that that racially we are different. We are, I mean, we are, it, it, it seems as if we are, we stand out. And there is definitely racial bias within our communities it's just like here in the city of Cleveland. I mean, they were just talking about our council members for the city of Cleveland. I, I talked, told the judge this earlier that for the city of Cleveland, Cuyahoga County has a huge African-American population, but yet our police force doesn't reflect that. And so when they come to our neighborhoods and police our neighborhoods, we have to tell our children that, hey, this is how you have to act. This is what you have to do. You know, there was just the other day, I, I bring up examples all the time. Uh, I was uh, reading an, an article on my phone. A 10-year-old boy was playing basketball in his own house, at his own house, and a police cruiser was driving down the street, and the boy ran behind the house because he was scared that the police was going to come and do something to him because he was playing basketball in his own yard. So we have to teach our kids early on, on how to react, what to do, hands up, hands in plain sight, hands on the steering wheel. Don't make no sudden moves because if we move to, I'm going to keep bringing up examples. There was a gentleman that asked him, uh, he was with his, uh, his wife, I believe it was, I want to say it was down South somewhere where the gentleman, they asked him where where was his license. He went to go grab his license and he shot the man dead. So we have to tell our children not to make any sudden moves. Whereas we can make one move. All we need to make in the black community is one move. And our Caucasian counterparts, uh, their reality, if they make, they can make 20 moves and still nothing will happen. They can struggle with the police. And the, at best, they're going to get handcuffed or get tased and go to jail. Where if we make one move, say the wrong thing, our life could be in danger. So so in our black community, we have to teach them this early on in life and, I, and, and, and where they can understand, where they can comprehend. And, and biblically speaking, we say that's between the ages it, it could be early on for some children everybody's different they can learn at the age of four or five but yes that talk starts early in the black community and that time if i can say that it may not be the specific talk about how you interact with police or how you carry yourself you know in certain environments i'll tell you i think I don't know. I might have been in a stroller remembering my mother telling me don't touch nothing in the store. I think that is just what every black child has heard and learned 
their entire time. I that we call the parking lot talk because my mother used to have that discussion in the parking lot. We're going in this store. I have this list. This is all I'm getting and don't touch nothing. That was it. And I now believe that that was sort of that ingrained idea that, you know, they will not accuse us of stealing or taking anything. It wasn't even perhaps so much as we can't pay. It was, I don't want the the specter or the accusation of us doing something that we, I just don't even want to have to deal with that accusation. And I just have known that my whole life. And that's the thing that we often pass down to our children. I think probably every black mother I know has had that, that, that parking lot talk with their child walking into a store. Don't touch nothing. And you walk in and it's, didn't I tell you, do not touch anything. And that sort of resonates because that whole idea of if we can't pay for it, do not touch it. And that, again, goes back to that idea of you sit in certain courtrooms and they are filled to the gills with just certain people. And you just are hard pressed to believe that, my gosh, you mean the only people that break the rules are... The people that look like me, that's that's just so the only mamas that had a parking lot talk are the black mamas. And if that's, in fact, the case, did if if the the white mothers aren't saying this to their kids, then do their kids feel like they're at liberty to do what they want? But then they just is that the white privilege at work? Because if white privilege is at work and it doesn't get punished, but black privilege doesn't go to work and the maybe infrequent time that it does, then my gosh, that's certainly getting over-policed because you catching it on those rare occasions. Because I'm going to tell you, black mamas are policing their kids. And if white mothers aren't, that is disparity all day long. But even that being said is the idea that we are absolutely, if we're not talking to our kids about how police are treated, we're definitely trying to show them that there is indeed privilege without saying it. We're trying to show them that there's a privilege that exists that they don't have the benefit of. You better know that there's going to be some folks out here that's going to get a pass that you are never going to get. And I need you to understand it right now because it's not going to get better It's going to be different. And now we even have to change how we say different because what the world is showing them is that this ain't different. This is worse. And we need you to adjust to the reality of this. What you're seeing in your face is not just different. Death is worse. Death death is not different. Death is worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Isaiah, I'm, I'm interested building on what the judge just said. Uh, it, it, you have a son, Alexander, who's 27. You have a nephew that you're helping guide, mm-hmm. a male nephew, Jalen, who's 18. Mm-hmm. Has the talk been different over that nine-year span between the talk you gave to Alexander 
and the talk you now give to Jalen, given the current circumstances? Um, yes. Uh, nine years ago, I mean, with my son, it's, it's you know, I, I, of course I've talked about that, but I would honestly admit nine years ago with my son, it, it was a different conversation because even though we had some of the issues that was that is present today going on back then, it, it wasn't as present. So I, I talked to my son about how to be a decent young man in society. And the key, which I am having the same conversation with my nephew today, uh, is education. This is how we can rise. Sometimes we can rise above some some things that are taking place today. But you you have to be educated. But today with Jalen, I will honestly say that there is a little bit more fear than what it was with my son, even when I was growing up. And uh, so so today is just more. Fear. My nephew, I look at my nephew, Jalen, he is about six feet. He's a good, strong young man, but he's going away to Morehouse, to, down to Atlanta. And, and I would probably say the fear, I have more fear for him today than what I did for my son. You know, going to a different city, we've seen just what happened in Atlanta recently. And uh, so I, I just try to tell him that, you know, in order to make it here, just continue on with your education, which is fantastic in which he's doing, and just, you know, how to remain calm, cool, and collective in certain situations. And, and let's just keep it frank. We all have to watch who we associate ourselves with, you know, but it, it, we can associate ourselves also with great people. But still, he's going to, he may stick out in the crowd. Things can happen to them. So I, I would say that the conversation is, is a little bit different than what I had with my son versus my nephew today. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. We talked, Isaiah just brought up the idea of fitting into society. Uh, as a minority, how do you parent a child that's going to fit into a world that doesn't look like him or her? 
and all that comes with that. That's got to be part of the talk. It's not part of the how you act with police talk, but it's got to be part of the talk, correct? Indeed. So assimilation um, in a lot of different ways. So we've told our children that this thing called the American dream is available to everyone. You just have to follow certain rules. And if you follow these rules, then you too can achieve this dream. And I believe what we're finding is that we see some successes, but we're now pulling back the covers and also laying bare some of our most embarrassing failures. And now we have to revisit this talk in light of all of that. Because we now have to say, hey, listen, you know what? Okay, the truth is the rules are different for you than they are for everybody else. And we sort of knew this and we kind of told you this up front. And all the while we were telling you this up front, yes, we were asking you to navigate a system and a world and a process where, yes, you were always the underdog. Yes, you were always going to have to be twice as good to get half as far. And yes, there was always some inherent built-in hatred for no reason other than the fact that you happen to be black. No other reason. And also, yes, there are some impediments that are purposely erected, that are purposely designed to leave you behind. That too is true. And in spite of all of this, yes, the expectation is that you will bound each one of these challenges and still Rise to the occasion. Every time you do this, we're going to do a little bit of clap for you and say, oh, my gosh, look at you. You are articulate. You are well-spoken. You are well-behaved. And you are still managing to outdo yourself, even though we have managed to do everything we can to hold you back. You're managing to do this. So you're assimilating well. We have to revisit this thing and also be honest with our kids at the same time. Because the truth of the matter, this is just really what's happening. And that, I think, is how we have to just really be honest and frame this and say, listen, the playing field wasn't never leveled. It just isn't and it wasn't. I was thinking about something just the other day. And I saw something and it just sort of, when we, when I thought about this talk, this discussion, I said, you know, the world froze in shock as we all watched a white police officer kneel on the neck of a black man, holding him down until he died in front of everybody. He knew he was being filmed. In fact, he casually looked into the camera and as the audience pled with him to stop, he ignored him. And his response was to continue doing what he was doing because he was 
draped in a glorious white privilege, a kind of brazen arrogance that is so frequently unchecked that let it go on. The kind of thing that Isaiah just said is the kind of arrogance and privilege a black person will never know. We have no idea what that even looks or feels like. And so with that in mind, with me telling my kid, hey, the golden rule is above all, above all more than anything, you got to live to tell the story. I had to pause and think about all of this. I had to not only think about what was happening to that black man that was dying in front of everybody. I also had to think about, hey, what about the trauma to the young person that's actually standing there paralyzed in fear? And the only weapon they have is a cell phone with a video. And how they are traumatized forever playing that scene in their mind over and over and over again. And they got somebody on the other side that has no conscience because their privilege gives them no conscience as to how they are damaging that child, a black child. And what kind of talk are we supposed to have with that child? And so my question is, have we outlived the utility of the talk? Because if the one I'm having with my kid is the same one that that now deceased George Floyd's mom probably had with him all those years ago. Cooperate, be polite, say ma'am and sir, don't resist and you're still dead. I'm not really sure what the recalibration looks like. If the approach to this for the person on the other side of the camera is to say the only power I have is to help somebody plead for their life while holding a camera. And if my pleading for somebody else's life still doesn't do it because that's the only power I got. And that doesn't do it. I'm a parent. I'm not sure how we go back to the table and we recalibrate this conversation. What are the new rules? Because we believed all along the rules of engagement was this is how we escaped lynching. You don't stare a white person in the eyes. You always say, ma'am and sir. You're always courteous. You remain respectful. You don't steal nothing. You always patient. You let somebody go in front of you if you need to. And you feel like you've done enough just to arrive only to get to 2020. And everybody's pleading and begging. Everybody's pleading and begging. Only to say, my gosh, there was some, everything we talked to our kids about, every mechanism, every 
thing that we tell them to employ was employed right there. You saw it in action. And so I just got to wonder, it didn't work. And so we back at the drawing board. Now what? Now what? Because my kid is still 20 going on 21 and I'm willing to bet donuts to dollars. He's going to have another encounter. Your kid, Isaiah, he's going to have another encounter. Jalen's going to have another encounter. Somebody in our life is going to have another encounter. What are the rules now? I don't know what to tell them now. And I'm honest enough to say that and scared enough to admit it. While we're talking about this and talking about white privilege, um, one thing came to mind when the judge was talking, and that is the privilege to be angry. Angry is a valid emotion, and sometimes anger is justified. Oftentimes it's not, but many times it is justified given a certain situation. As a white person, I have the privilege to be angry, and I can express that anger in appropriate ways. What I'm hearing is, though, that the black child, or the black person in general, but the black child is part of the talk that we're talking about, has no privilege to be angry because anger is drawing a target. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Could you I'll, imagine, I'll, Tom, I'll if the black child that was filming the death of George Floyd had become angry? Can you imagine how many deaths we might actually be talking about? No, I can't imagine. But it just struck me that that's a valid emotion that is stripped away from your children unless they want to put their lives in danger. Right. I mean, we, we are not, uh, we, we, that's one of the part of the talk is about controlling your emotions. Because as soon as we say one thing or our voice begin to raise, then we are, we are considered the angry black person or the, you know, <laughs> there's a comment, there's a common saying amongst African-Americans, especially with a woman is, is just like, if she raises up what, then she's the angry black woman. And, and it, it could happen. We, we get angry if we are mistreated, but just like the judge saying, we could, uh, if, if we express our emotion of being anger, of being angry rather, then uh, it could lead to a lot of destruction. And so we could be angry and not cause acts of violence it, it, but it's just a, 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 a problem amongst our our race. And I believe it causes that that fear 
amongst our some of our Caucasian counterparts. And and, and it's an emotion that and an emotion that I have to tell my own son. I said, Alex, you, I said, whenever you, you know, you come across the police, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, stay, I, we, we talked earlier, stay calm. He had an incident. Oh, some, I think it was probably about three years ago. Him and his fiance, which is now his wife, they were coming from, they was on the beach one, uh, one summer and they had a great time she went to her parents' house and, and he did too. But there was a gentleman who said something to my son who was sitting across the street from my son. And so my son, my son continued on down the street towards his vehicle to get it to his car. Whereas the, the gentleman got up from his house or from his driveway or whatever. And he ran to my son and he, put his hands on my son. So of course my son defended himself. So the gentleman went back to his house and he grabbed a gun and he threatened everybody on the street and, uh, and the neighbors called and the neighbors were Caucasian and he hit my son with the gun. Thank God he didn't try to shoot him or do anything like that. But I'm bringing this up to say because when the police arrived on the scene, they discussed, oh, there's a white male and a black male, and they got into an altercation. Now, the white male, now the guy was not white, but he was very fair-skinned. But throughout the police report, he was a white male, the neighbors, he had a gun, he threatened everybody on the street that was that was there. And told him he would shoot them all. He got this gun. When I tell you I arrived on the scene, it was a totally different story. You would have thought that this guy never had a gun. You would have thought that he never caused the situation. They were speaking to him on nice and calm while my son was in the backseat of a police of the police cruiser. This is here in South Euclid. And he has this huge not on his head because I told you they hit him with the gun. I had to tell the officer that, hey, my son is passing out in the back seat of your car because he was hit with the gun. The neighbor said that he that this man threatened threatened everybody with the gun. That he pointed at him, that he hit it, that he hit him. And they they were talking to the guy in the car like he was their best friend. And what drew my attention to this whole thing as I was reading the report, the guy said that I'm a blood, I'm, the, I'm, I'm in a bloods gang. So I said, well, how, you know, there are no uh, white people in the bloods. <laughs> There's only black. So that drew my attention right there. I said, so this guy, is he's a black male, but they thought that he was white. And they treated him totally different on that scene versus my son who did not cause the issue, who was hit with a gun, who was defending himself. You know, but but thank God that, you know, he gave me the wit to get my son through this. But this is the difference between what happens in our community 
versus our Caucasian counterparts community. And so we, we, we have to just continue to have to talk with our kids. And going back to what you said about fitting in, you asked, you asked that question a little bit earlier mm-hmm. about fitting in. Yes, we have to talk to our children about fitting into this society. And the ways that we talk to our children is the way that I believe that my judge's mother and father talk to her about her education. We have to talk to our children about education because the judge said earlier, we have to work twice as hard. And and what I mean by going to school, getting an education, I'm not talking about going to get even a business degree. It's that's great. You may have it. But for if if it was my black child that has a business degree versus this white child that has the same business degree, they're not going believe me, they're going to hire this white individual more so than my black son or black daughter. So we have to teach our kids that they have to even ex- they have to excel higher. You know, business degree is fine. But we need to teach. We have to teach our kids that, yes, yes, you can be the doctor. You can be the lawyer. You can go on into politics and become that next judge, the next president, the next council. They we, we have to teach them, that, but we have to teach them to achieve higher goals, because this is the way that we as our black young men and our black young w- women have to fit in this society and so this is a way that they can fit is through education and then there's another thing me and the judge talked about we call it coding talking and we have to sometimes change the even the way we speak to fit into society and i had to tell my son that my wife tells my son that my wife is works in the school district and we call it, I call it a professional voice. We have to put on that professional voice because if we talk any other way, then we're ghetto or whatever. Sometimes even, even being a parent in a black community, we have to be careful what we name our children because when that individual goes for an interview, then they may automatically perceive, well, that's a black person. We're not going to hire so this is how this these are the conversations that we have with our children in order to fit in this society. Judge, let me ask um, we seem to have not come very far from uh Days when I was raised in the 50s and 60s and and thought we were making some progress into the 21st century. But it seems like, you know, we still have the stereotypes. As you said the other day, you're well-spoken, you're you're articulate. Uh, All of these pejorative kinds of condescending crap that uh, is used in in interpersonal relationships between races. Have, have we made any progress at all? 
Well, Tom, I'm sure, aren't you told your children are well-behaved? Occasionally, maybe. <laughs> they're, they're older, but occasionally. But, 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 but not in the way I think you're saying it. Indeed. Uh, let me, let me tell you on a serious note, though, I have, as, as a parent, as a white parent, I have never had these conversations. I mean, I have had, you know, be polite, be mannerly, be respectful. I've certainly had those conversations, but I've never had self-defense, protective conversations of how you would not be targeted. You know, those conversations don't exist. So the, this is truly what we mean when we say welcome to my world. And perhaps yeah. it's not such a welcome mat. It is more shocking than anything, but it really is the reality of the daily black experience. When, when my child uh, and I had a, have a son and a daughter and they're both older and way into their adulthood, but, but, when they left the house, it was uh, have a good time, be careful. Uh, you know, the I trust you uh, kind of thing, so that they wouldn't do something totally stupid. But there was always the ex expectation that they would come home. You know, you'd check their breath if they've been drinking, and you know, you do those kinds of things. Uh, you were fearful of a car accident, perhaps, but but that was the the basics of parenting that is so far different from the experience that I am hearing from you so far different I I can't describe to you how unsettling it is to know that you've agreed your child would be home at from a party at one or 130 and it's 145 and They've texted and said, hey, I'm on my way home, be there in a few. And it's, you know, 15 or 20 minutes later. And maybe it's just bad traffic or something. That's fine. But I don't sleep if everyone's not in the house. Because I just don't know what's happening. And that is the... And that, I think, is the unsettling of probably every, or just about every, maybe every Black mother, because for whatever reason, I think my husband is a little bit calmer and more trusting. I don't, I'm not sure why. Um, but my concern is that that constant, did it happen this time? Your, your concern is that your child comes home alive. Yes. I mean, is that overstated or is that spot on? That's, I believe that that's spot on because you, you don't sleep when your kids are out or, you know, I mean, it, it's just, it, I mean, in general, you know, you, you, 
I have some great kids and great niece and nephew, but it's just the fear of of just your child being maybe pulled over. And I could give you another example of that. I, I believe I spoke on it earlier of just one one night there was a basketball game at Brush High School. And I just remember, I, I, I did speak on it earlier, but my daughter calling me and just listening to this officer, he was screaming. You would have thought that my daughter put her hands on while she was sitting in her car. Like I said, she was backing out of a space, didn't see the guy, and he just, he just at the top of his lungs. And thank God she had the presence of mind to just, I I was on the phone talking to her. And I told her, I said, stick that phone out. To, I mean, just put it down, but whereas he can hear my voice. And he heard my voice and he calmed himself down. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just that fear of your child being pulled over. And I don't care how old they are being pulled over by the police, you know, because it's, it's it, especially in 2020, it, it is just, I, I like to use this saying, it's too much. It's just too much going on. It shouldn't be going on, but I believe you brought it up, Tom, earlier since the 50s. Nothing has really changed. The only thing that, that, that has changed in, in a little instance, is at least back in the 30s to the 50s, you knew who they were because they were riding around with sheets on their head. The only difference now is that they are in a professional world and they work professional jobs. So you don't know who is racist and who is not. So that's why we have to teach our kids these lessons of today because you just don't know. That's why, you know, I pray every day, every night for every child, not just my own, that when they go to, to different places, do certain things that they all can return home safely. Now, I, I can admit that some things that you that, that kids do, they can't bring it upon themselves. I can't admit to that. But some things they don't, and they're not looking for this. So, yes, there is a great fear within the black community about when their children leave the house. And I will tell you this, Tom, real quickly, that growing up, I, I, I love my mother and father. I had the best childhood ever. And I did not have that fear back then. When we left the house, we played in the neighborhood. Everybody got along. But the fear today is prevalent versus when I was growing up. And I was born back in 1969. I was 50 years old. Judge, I'm going to give you the last word. What have we missed? 
in our conversation? You know, I actually think we've had a very robust discussion here where um, we've touched on, I think most, if not all of the important points about the talk that we as black parents have with our children, but also whether or not as black parents in what we have seen unfold in the last several weeks, if that talk still has its same level of relevance, which is what I am genuinely concerned about. We love our children um, and we are desperately concerned about their, not just their physical safety, but I think one of the, the conversations that we haven't really talked a lot about is something, Tom, that you've touched on, which is their agency and ability to just be angry and to express the emotions that they experience in the moment because they just haven't had permission to do that without considerable pushback and experiencing just the harshest responses from society and what the long-term impact of that has been, how it's stymied growth, how their white and non-minority, how their non-minority counterparts in having had the ability to experience that have also experienced levels of growth um, that they have not, and that that really causes um, disparate impact, but also how that also may in fact be disproportionately affecting the mental health of black and brown children, which I think is a perhaps a totally different subject that has lacked the proper attention. And that also may be generational. Remember, you know, we've taught generationally our children and our families and ourselves to suppress these feelings. We've told ourselves we didn't have a right to feel angry or mad or sad because of the way that we were treated, because that's just the way things are. And we just have to live within this system that's been created and we're going to have to navigate and maneuver our way through this. And you know what? It'll all work out in the end. Well, we see what that has netted. And yes, in so many ways it has. Look, this is a country that's seen its way clear to elect its first black president. We've made so many exceptional strides on so many levels, but quite frankly, let's just call it what it is. We are not really genuinely singing we shall overcome as a nation the way that we should because we are yet overcoming and we are not all buying in to this great idea that this great experiment of a nation is all that it can be because not everybody's got skin in the game and not everybody is tagging in. And some folk are just fine leaving entire races of folk behind. And that we see and we know. And it's only because we are finally, finally forcing candid conversations like this that are genuinely moving the needle 
that we're, I think, actually going to make genuine progress. I think we need to touch on all of the things that matter. Um, but we need to really, every time we do, we peel back something else. And that's a good thing. That is a good thing. Well, Judge Gale and Isaiah, thank you so much for sharing. We will continue these conversations every time we start one. As the judge indicated, we have more to talk about, and we'll do that in the future. But I want to thank both of you for giving us your your time and your expertise on on this topic. Thank you very, very, very much. And thank you, John, for the invite. Today, we've been talking with Isaiah Simmons and Judge Gail Williams-Byers about parenting black children today and the efforts to keep them safe. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.